Mickey, it's so wonderful to talk to you. Um, your book is, it's such a pleasure. It's so interesting. There's so much stuff that people are not really aware of that you've dealt with in your life. And so I guess I want to talk a bit more about that, um, as well as um, I think some of the things that we share in terms of Britpop and 90s and being in rock bands in, from that era. Um, I mean, I know that a lot of artists talk about um, their first records and the first things that they're into. And so it was actually quite interesting to, to when I was reading your book, you were talking about why well, you actually didn't come from a musical background. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I'm sort of aware that most musicians kind of narrative is like, you know, those. it's all about the music. It's all about the environment of music that they grew up in. And I didn't really have that. I mean, it was there in the way that it is with like a another person. But it wasn't really particularly central to, you know, it was films, it was telly, it was sport, it was, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was all kind of muddled into that landscape. And the music didn't really sort of start um, resonating with me that viscerally until I was kind of at school um, and going into teenage years, really. So it's the charts and it's pop music and, and stuff like that. So my dad had like appalling taste in music. You know, he didn't know. anything about it my (laughs) my, how how bad was it how bad was it (laughs) I mean you know I just don't think he really understood you know it was it was kind of like he quite liked disco music because he liked going to pick up women in discos he would sort of sing (laughs) Adam Faith songs in the car and and Elvis songs but just because he thought they were quite funny and they do sound quite amusing with a Hungarian accent and like my yeah. mum was more into music. She did listen to kind of, I don't know, Carly Simon, I remember, and Roberta Flack, you know, the sort of big 70s kind of, you know, female singers and stuff. But most of the music I got was from the telly. You know, there were loads of those sort of, you know, Lulu had a show and the pops and, and yeah, you know, Nana Mascuri had a show and there was, you know, I don't know, all these sort of, Shirley Bassey or whatever so it was kind of TV mixed with that and then a lot of like film musicals so you know pre-teen I'd say telly was probably the biggest influence. It's it's interesting because I have the same feeling I mean I I, I mean you talk you hear artists talking about oh you know my dad played me a Beatles record at three o'clock and that's where it all started and I was like mm, not really I mean I got all my musical things because there was just so much more music on telly you know top of the pops religiously every sun every Thursday at seven watch that but it's uh, it's interesting because I think in some ways, like you know, we had to go look for it and search for it and find it and work out where we were the music that we liked because we didn't have. I mean, my my musical background, which is reggae, reggae, and then more reggae, and in between that, a bit more reggae because I'm from a Jamaican <laughs> family. Um, so I think there's something in having to go and search for it and look for it and and work out what you love about music, which is, I think it breeds a different kind of mentality towards it, no? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think I looked at music as a very, like, um, initially like a really communal thing. Like it was a way to kind of... Um, solidify friendships and I moved schools a lot like a a lot and you know even when I was at school in Windsor which was like a kind of church school you know it would be like kids running around in the playground singing you know Brotherhood of Man songs or something and girls doing dance (laughs) routines to kind of Wuthering Heights or something but you know when I was at school in Labrook Grove it was kind of um, you know very mixed race 
And one of the sort of meeting points of all those kind of quite factional little groups, and it was a girls' school, was um, music, specifically ska, which I think was, you know, it's kind of a lucky thing, isn't it? Because it is actually very child-friendly, a lot of that music. It's got that kind of, you know, you can dance to it, and then you had, like, It's it's, it's positive, it's up, it's... Right speed. Exactly. You had like, you, you know, you had the white girls into like madness and, you know, the beat, but you could get like, um, I mean, the beat had like, you know, Rag and Roger and, you know, but, you know, there was a mix, right? So it wasn't sort of, whereas yeah. usually up till that, I do remember like the white girls like really loving Gary Newman. Do you know what I mean? But there was, there was no crossover <laughs> potential for that. So Scar, I think, was the thing that really was my first sort of right I'm going to go out and buy all the records I'm actually going to buy albums the beat selector I talked about Pauline Black a lot I interviewed her on the show actually I mean yeah I mean it's interesting like they were just and they were number one you know I'm not being kind of oh I was so cool I love the specials they were literally number one right so there's nothing adventurous about that it was just that it was just to have something that amazing at the top of the charts was really great, you know. I was brought up in um, a, a Scar family because of, you know, my, my granddad had a nightclub. And so for me, that was my bridge from, um, you know, my music. Because it's like, oh, hold on. Everyone at school is into my music, my music that my granddad was listening to. And it's cool all of a sudden. And that was my bridge into like indie music. It's like guitars, the, the, the way that the specials and selector and all those bands. Uh, had kind of um, guitars where they used them. That's what got me into indie music, and that was my journey out of reggae and into other kind of music. So it's really interesting that you have uh, that analogy. Um, I want to um, talk a little bit more about your family because it's so. Um, you just had a very. I'm just reading about your. I'm at the beginning of the book, which I only got a couple of days ago, um, and it's just really intriguing to hear their stories and and to work out how that affected you which i'm sure you go into later on into more later on in the book but tell me a little bit about your family um well my dad was from hungary my mum was from japan and they kind of met at the tokyo olympics because he was out there uh, as a journalist and she was just um, 1964 right uh yes 64 yes and then they kind of met and then they you know i mean the short story is they ended up eloping or she ended up eloping and, and coming to live with him in Britain. And I mean, they weren't together for a particularly long period. I was born in 67, same as you, I think. Great year. And, <laughs> and fantastic year for music. Some of the best albums ever recorded came out in 67, right? <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I literally was, I met David McCormont last night and he's from, he was born in 1967 as well. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, so my mum eloped. My dad was already living here. He came over in 56 when, um, you know, there was a kind of rebellion in, in Hungary. And he so she came to live with him. I mean, I think the marriage lasted probably about four or five years. Um, my dad was a appalling womanizer. Um, <laughs> I can't make any excuses for him, really. <laughs> so... <laughs> So they, and, you mine know, too, my, mine too, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my mum left and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, for a while she was kind of still living in this country. She met another man. But then she moved to America when I was about 12. So I had this very 
like back and forth between them, two very separate households. Certainly when she moved to America, there was that kind of, you know, America and the holidays back to London. She'd lived in Windsor for a while. So then it was like school in Windsor, weekends at home. So there was always this kind of two very, very separate lifestyles. My dad was um, just totally kind of he did his own thing you know the house was an absolute tip um he was out at all hours often would take me I mean I'm not gonna lie a lot of it was quite a lot of fun <laughs> you know but at the same time you know and then at my mum's it was much more disciplined and controlled and so trying to fit into the two places was quite challenging sometimes It's interesting to hear that background and then you know you get to i'm going to jump much later on because then you end up meeting emma your co-conspirator in lush and forming a, a kind of an indie rock band it's interesting to me because you know being we're the same age and being around at the same time so your band and suddenly Britpop comes along was that like a blessing or a curse it's difficult for me to sort of really talk objectively about Britpop. And I'm aware that, you know, there's a current sort of wave of people slagging it off, which I feel sort of slightly bad about because I recognise that from the outside, it was a really vibrant and exciting time. As much as we've been talking about Scar and how great it was to be 12 years old when that was happening, I yeah. absolutely understand that being a teenager when Britpop was happening was brilliant. You know, it was really, really exciting for people, yeah. Absolutely. But I think on the inside, it was, um, I felt, I mean, I wasn't in a great place anyway, because having, you know, it was the, the tail end of our band. So we'd been through a kind of indie sort of landscape where there was, a, you know, it was more of a, you know, the mainstream was separate. So bands like the Cocteau Twins and Throwing Muses and Pixies and all of those bands may have been popular and they could sell out quite a big venue but it wasn't like top 10 you know they weren't on top of the pops every five minutes um mm. there was still still a kind of indie sensibility about all of it and you know we were on a label 4ad which very much embodied that you know it yeah, was all absolutely. about art and kind of packaging and uh, every record was an artifact and you know artists rarely appeared on their sleeves you know it was very focused on the music and not not really about sort of pushing these personalities who were like larger than life and making them the focus rather than the music mm. and to me Britpop reversed all that because it was much more commercial it was trying to make a lot more money it was chart focused and um that was just not my comfort zone to be honest yeah. I don't know. I mean, how did you feel about, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you had this massive public profile, but I do think, you know, you're a band, but I think that push on well, the lead singer and the... Yeah, it was interesting for us because, you know, our influences were a bit more American, a lot heavier, a bit more metal. And then we were doing very well. BBC loved us, you know, Evening Session did our first songs and we were just something very, very different, quite refreshing for the market, you know, if you want to talk about music in that way. Um, and then Britpop came along and it was it was literally overnight, suddenly we were the devil. And I remember the enemy just literally turned on us overnight and we couldn't understand it. We're like, why are we suddenly getting bad reviews for doing exactly the same thing? 
And it wasn't really until I was researching my book and doing my book myself that I discovered that there was actually a very definite decision that was made that, okay, we're tired of grunge, you know, um, Kurt Cobain is dead. Um, we need to take music back and make it British again. And there was this whole kind of decision by, I know people like Damon Albarn and journalists and, you know, industry bods or whatever, to kind of not promote anything that wasn't going to be this select new thing. Because at the time, and it, it re- literally, it wasn't until the last two or three years I found that out, you know, I discovered that. We've never really been un- un- able to understand why Britain kind of turned on us, you know, because the people still loved us. We still did very well. We went out and played, luckily, in lots of different countries who supported us. But we would never be, we were never cool again in, in England in the same way. Um, and so finding that out kind of made me quite irritated with the whole thing, even more so, because at the time, Sky Connected weren't part of it. Um, we were never seen as a Britpop band. In fact, we didn't get any of the TV shows, any of the radio shows. We were definitely not Britpop and were very rejected, even though the first year of our career, we were kind of so lauded. And so I have a really kind of like, um, it, for me, it felt very much like Britpop was about white boy bands um, and kind of lad culture. And if you weren't, you know, the only way we could access it, if we kind of got very drunk and became ladettes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my feeling. And, and I had, I had the feeling that Lush were kind of, um, Britpop because you're around at the same time and successful more than the fact that you were trying to emulate a certain sound or trying to behave in a certain way or trying to keep you know, going down to a locked tavern and sitting on some journalist's lap or something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because there was all that going on. And so, I, I mean, I, so I was, I was interested that, you know, because, you know, I felt like when Britpop came along, all of a sudden bands like Pulp and other bands that were just very, very good British bands were kind of lumped into it, you know. Um, and then the next wave seemed to be bands that were definitely trying to be Britpop because it was being so successful, you know. Um, and I just wondered, you know, where you stood in all of that, you know, as you said, it was the, more to the tail end of your career. You, you, you've been a band since 1988? Yeah, I think it was 89, maybe we did Scar, I think. So, but 88, we were, I think, first gigs. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think because we'd been through shoegaze and, you know, whatever, right? <laughs> Yeah, we've been in that world for a while, and I and also, you know, Emma. Before we even were playing gigs, was working with um way back in the day with Jeff Barrett, who did the press for Creation and for of course, yeah, Factory. So, you know, we had friends who were journalists. You know, even during all that Britpop stuff, I was going out with John Best, who ran Savage and Best as a PR company. So we had quite a lot of insider in, insight and we did have sort of mates who were, you know, journalists. I mean, you would think that we would have been able to navigate it better with that information, <laughs> but we were hopeless <laughs> at it. Um, but I think all I'm saying is, is that I kind of saw how the press worked. I got it. You know, it's a weekly publication that Enemy and Melody Maker with their their sort of rivalry, both published by IPC, that turnover, it was very much about, you know, next big thing, next big thing, you know, build them up, 
trash them when once everyone gets sick of them stick the boot in because they love that you know what I mean mm, yeah and then get the next one and it's just this sort of mill and mm. very very few bands would survive that and you know the editorial control you know they had a lot of power I mean they could literally I personally know of editorial meetings where it's like you know oh right we've got the next out Lush album you know who thinks it's crap you know what I mean? We need someone to say that it's rubbish. Like, do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, no, it's, that's what it felt like. It felt like they all of a sudden a different bunch of journalists were talking about us that we knew didn't like us. And it's like, well, why are you guys talking about us? It's like, you hate us, you know? I don't know if that's changed now. I don't feel like it's changed now. I just think it's, it's different because it's in social media. So it's a different kind of energy. But I do but remember... I don't, I don't think anyone has that kind of stranglehold. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, I still think, um, you know, Ready Wanton has like a lot of power, you could say, in terms of like getting bands to that next level. But yes, social media has so much more control at the moment. And I think, you know, there's there's places, I don't think that there's a kind of overarching, you know, voice that dictates the narrative, which I do think the music press really did. I mean, I'm sure that when you would go to America, you would feel quite liberated from that. Do you know what mm. I mean? I don't think mm. obviously the weeklies didn't have the same kind of influence and you could go across the pond and they're like, I mean, you know, that was the thing of shoegaze. Shoegaze was invented as a term to say, aren't these bands really boring because they look at the floor and they're a and bunch they don't of... they move around, yeah. Yeah, and they're a bunch of face students. You go to America and they're like, oh my God, you know, you're a shoegaze <laughs> band and, and you're like, are you literally taking the piss and they're like <laughs> but they think it's great they yeah. just think it's a word and it's sort of liberated from its kind of you know it, derogatory it, exactly it's very different here because I live in New York uh, listeners and it's very different here because it's kind of like they love a genre and they love a box and they like you know they loved EDM by the way because it was just like oh yeah we know what that is and they're very good at taking an idea normally that Brits come up with and marketing it and producing it and making tons of money out of it. So I think that America, America is very, it, it just, it's, it's brilliant for doing that. And as you say, they get very excited. They get very excited about anything British, to be honest, in, in all of its forms. Right now, they love grime. You know, all the taxi mm -hmm. drivers and all the Uber drivers and the shops, whatever they're doing, you know, playing Stormzy and, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's so British music. Is, this, this is like, a, you know, Britpop, except it's black and it's underground, you know. What made you want to write the book now? How did you get to that point where you feel you could tell that story, tell your story now? Um, I, the short answer is I was asked. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't have this memoir ready, you know, like, please someone publish it. No, I was asked. So I thought, okay, maybe I should have a go at this. And I did the kind of whole sample chapter, blah, blah, blah. I've got a quite a hoarding mentality. I've got a lot of photo albums and diaries and gig lists and all sorts of crap. So I did think, I have got the stuff here to sort of pull Put it together. this together, mm. you know. Um, and I think uh, my my issue was, I suppose, that Lush uh, were not that famous, right? And so that was a bit double-edged. In one sense, 
um, I just thought, well, who's going to care really about how we recorded that album and whatever? Do you know what I mean? But on the other hand, it sort of liberated me from having to, you know, tick all of those boxes. Like, obviously, you have to cover that tour. Everybody knows about that album, you know, landmark moments. So I could kind of just talk about what I wanted to talk about and I could write it in uh, like for someone who doesn't actually know that much about music. And that was actually really appealing to me. And quite refreshing. So, I mean, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say you don't know a lot about music, but I would actually say that that angle uh, was quite refreshing um, because it's a little bit more. I mean, it's more real. It's not as kind of snobby, musically snobby as some books have been. Um, and there's different ways to tell the same story. You know, I feel like people keep talking about things in the same way, um, especially Britpop. You know, it's like, um, if I come across one more book about how incredible Britpop was, you know, and, and the other side of that was Britpop for, for a lot of people was very um, upsetting because we weren't part of it. We wanted to be part of it in the beginning. And then at the end, we were like glad we weren't part of it. Yeah. And it took um, up a lot of room as well. Yeah. You know? I mean, it was hard to exist on the peripheries because it mm. really muscled into the room and just took over. You know. Well, yeah, literally, if you weren't Britpop, you weren't getting press, you weren't getting radio play, you weren't getting TV shows, you weren't getting any of that. Um, but luckily, there was still um, a, a lot of people like Jules Holland and in the industry that had a much more broader aspect and broader attitude towards music who were, who were very supportive. But so what was the hardest part about writing your book was um, because obviously you reveal some things about your family that some people might have something to say about, you know, um, or was it just that the actual enormity of looking at your life and trying to gather the right parts of it to make it interesting for other people, which was, you know, one of the things I had to go through. <laughs> and also not telling part of the story, but not the whole story, because you don't want to put people in the shit, you know. Yeah, I think that's quite a tricky thing, isn't it? I mean, it's it's mm. who's, you know, other people's stories are intertwined with your own. So it's difficult to draw that boundary between, you know, what you're giving away about their lives. And <clears throat> I'm actually... It's probably horribly indiscreet about a lot of mine. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get I'm in trouble. Bit, well, I, I'll be honest, it, I am a bit like that myself. And it, and I did have to think about this. Like someone was talking about the whole, whole tone of the book. And there are really difficult issues discussed. You know, there are kind of, you know, sexual abuse or, or you know, kind of family breakups and, you know, self-harm and God knows what other crap I went through. But that they were saying, you know, it's got quite a sort of, it's not melodramatic, it's got quite a detached tone, even quite humorous. And I did think, I know what you mean. And I suddenly thought, oh my God, that's my dad's voice. He would, that was very much how he talked. I grew up around that kind of anecdotal, yeah. you know, stories that he would make hilarious, you know, even though sometimes terrible things happened in yeah. them. And I did think, well, that is how I, think almost and talk so yeah. I think some people who are in the book have you know said oh yeah yeah it's fine I know what you're like this is how you talk other people are offended and you know but it's I think it's 
I can't really help that. That is how I talk. Like I'm not, I'm not picking out someone and making them the bad person and everyone around them is lovely. That is how I talk about everyone and myself included. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. I mean, it's, I think it's, we're just, it's just so interesting for someone to be offended about the way you tell your story that happened to you. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how can you be offended about telling something about somebody telling their story about their life and you're offended about the way that they talk about it? Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, it's such a, we live in such a weird world now where um, people are so, um, you know, they, they expect to be looked after and catered for mentally in every aspect even when reading somebody else's book you're supposed to look after how they may or may not feel not knowing anything about them about yes. what may or may not offend them you know and and you're right because I think that you know part of the problem you know and I am that thin skin that I look at Amazon reviews and you know retweet the one star ones and have a rant about it yeah but you know again it's that thing of Um, you will get people who will go, well, she doesn't sound like a very nice person. And I think, okay, that's really not the point of the book, you know. Um, (laughs) You're not trying to be nice. You're trying to appeal to to everybody's grandma. Yeah, and also, you know, that even people will sort of go, oh, you know, about someone else in the book. And they say, oh, God, so they were really horrible then. And I'm like, no, I've literally put in the book, they did some crappy things, but they're They've got lots of other balancing characteristics. I can't really control how other people respond to these things, you know. And there is a bit of me that thinks, I mean, you're right, I get it. We are from a slightly tougher generation in that respect. You know, when you describe kind of growing up in Brixton and, you know, there's like, I mean, I think one of the interesting differences between our backgrounds is that Weirdly, there are similarities in that, you know, traveling to the Caribbean, completely different world and completely different way that makes you feel, you know, in that environment. And I had like, you know, Japan or or Hungary and, Mm. you know, but also kind of quite a lot of chaos. Right. I mean, I didn't have the back wall of my house blown off, but I did have. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I did have you know, just this really rundown environment. And, you know, and I think um, that kind of, whether you call it neglect, whether you call it just um, not that same kind of helicopter parenting that you get now, you know, we were left a lot a lot to our own devices. Yeah, yeah we just wander around quite, all day. Mm. Absolutely. And that left you very vulnerable, but it also left you kind of, able to navigate the world and know, recognize it, recognize what is dangerous, what is bad, what is benign and not feel frightened of absolutely everything out there that doesn't yeah, street kind smart. of. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, the one big difference I think we had is you had such a community, you know, and you had siblings and I think I was always craving that, you know, that, so that's quite a different mm. um, sort of, yeah. Oh, I, I, you know, it's interesting you say that because I mean, I, I feel like um, 
that my mum, because my dad was such a philanderer, she just kept, she wasn't sure who he was shagging and who he wasn't shagging. So she just basically just kept us away from everybody. So even though there was this community and there's, there's this, 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 my granddad had this club and stuff like that, my mum was just so scared and wary and proud. My mum is the proudest person on the planet that she didn't want to ever be in a situation with one of the women that my dad was shagging. Um, I'm sure she would any she was anyway she just didn't know and so it was we we never really hung out with anybody we just it was just the four of us kids by ourselves a lot and then mm. or as you say we wandered the streets um and in that we had to, we learned how to protect ourselves there's community and then obviously the church there's community but it's it's not a very nurturing community you know it's not a very safe community and it's not a community that you feel is actually looking after you or protecting you. It's more communities just watching you so they can go report back and get you in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, for not being religious enough. Or, you know, it's, it's weird because I think, um, I mean, I, I search for that now. I mean, I, we have a, I have a 10 month old baby and you have children too. And I think that's the thing that we search for now is to have that kind of community that in a way that that's going to actually nurture our kids and but not overprotect them at the same time i mean did having children really change the perspective i mean having the childhood that you had having the parents and having the grandma that you had um how did that kind of change what did what the things you wanted to change in terms of growing up with your own kids in that way I mean, I was very aware being an only child and being sort of, you know, catapulted left, right and centre in <clears throat> different schools with very little time to make friends before I was shunted on again. You know, my parents were always like, I treated you like an adult or blah, 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 and this, that and the other. And it, and I missed being with other children. I, you know, so one of the main things I thought with my, I really believed with my kids is children need other children. They need school. They need a, a place where there are friends who can come and visit them and be in their homes. And, you know, we live on a street where when my kids were small, like all the doors were open and it's a cul-de-sac. So they would all be out there in and out of each other's homes. That was my like idyll. Now, I'm not saying Fantastic. bad things didn't happen. There's, I'm not saying that there wasn't some crappy kid who was a bit of a bully and my kids would come home going, oh, they're being really horrible to me. Whatever. Right. But the point was, was that there's like. Um, lots of other kids to play with my children felt socialized and that was really important to me and school was important and being involved in that school community was important yeah and meeting other parents and so exactly what you're saying the way your mother kind of you felt kind of cut you off from a mm. lot of even though that community was out there you were kind of like you know shielded not part from of it, it yeah I just wanted my kids to have some of that good and bad you know what I mean um mm. And some of it for selfish reasons, you know, I like to work. I don't want to be at home all day being, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? With it yeah, it's a lot of work. Responsibility. Yeah, it's a and, lot of work looking after kids. Mm. Oh, it's a full-time job. And in fact, you know, Moose, my partner, did more of the, you know, he worked part-time part and I worked full-time. I mean, partly because he could. But, and even that was important to have one parent, you know, around for after school and all of that. You know what I mean? Yes, you make less money, but it's like the children, yeah. I think. So I think whereas I centred my children a lot more, I didn't just expect them to keep up with my lifestyle like my parents did. I did make more of a conscious effort to go, OK, well, we're going to 
you know, make this effort to build an environment around yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. What were the greatest takeaways that you have from being in Lush in the 90s? What were the fun things that you were like, at the time, you're like, this is fun. And then you look back and you think, yeah, that was great. Oh, I mean, there was low. I loved being in a band, you know. I mean, there was a huge portion of it playing live, making music, even rehearsing. It's really good fun. You know, you're hanging out with your mates and there yeah. is something quite, it's something quite visceral. It's literally visceral. Playing music and having like, you know, the bass come in and the drums and it's all gelling and it's all fitting together. And it's really euphoric to feel that, you know, it's got a whole power of its own. And then taking that to an audience. I mean, you know, writing a book is one thing, but to actually just play it and have people screaming and shouting and clapping their hands. I mean, how much more direct do you want? Do you know what I mean? It's an so amazing much fun. And, 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 and listening to your music, I was listening to a lot of music all day yesterday, and it's like there's so many songs that are just kind of beautifully, they just, they just spiral and keep going and just spiral into different flavours and layers and vocals come in and out as well. I think that people... Um, kind of forget how musical it was you know that and how much one how wonderful it was to listen to it is to listen to as well and and i think that all of those things you know even be able to express you know your feelings your you know your inner demons or whatever in lyrics and you know which is a, a therapy of its own in a way you know you're wrestling with it and it's at the front of your mind and you're trying to create something out of it that still conveys some of the pain but is something that you know is kind of appealing maybe you know what I mean mm -hmm. so all of those things I think were brilliant experiences that I really really enjoyed you know the problem comes is when someone you know slags off your lyrics and goes well they're just singing about fluffy clouds and then you feel bruised and then that kind of has its effect <laughs> and then that makes you thin-skinned and then you don't know who to trust like your mother you know you're out there going well I don't know who slagged me off but it was one of you lot <laughs> <laughs> I know I just stopped reading any press and reading any reviews and reading because I was just like you know what it's just if it's good I don't like it. If it's bad, I don't like it. So yeah. I just, I just shielded myself from all of that. Um, That's very wise. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was self survival because I didn't know how to deal with any of that. You know, the criticism and all that. You know, there's no skills. It's there's no. There's two things I look when I look back. There's like nobody taught you how to do business. You know, the business side of it to make good business decisions. And nobody t really tells you how to emotionally cope with all the mental stress of being in a band and what people <clears> have to say about it. And, and being lead singers, we get a lot of the criticism directed straight at us. You know, if people don't like Skunk and Nancy, they don't like me. It's like, yeah, I just don't like lead singer. I don't like her voice. It's like, what about the other guys? <laughs> you know, yeah, they yeah, had a yeah. lot to do with it, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but listen, it's been really... Um, I uh, really lovely to talk to you. And I, I'm, I, listeners out there, if there's one book you get this year, the book is called Fingers Crossed How Music Saved Me From Success. It's a real page turner. I said that at the beginning of the interview. It's, it's, I, I thought I'd, I'm not going to have time to read the whole thing. So I started skimming it. I was like, I can't skim this. And I went back and back to the beginning and started like reading everything. And um, I, I, did you, have you done an audio book? Because I want you to read it to me. I have done an audio book. Yeah. Right. That's that's 
and that's my favorite way to 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 listen to to a book it's just i just love that but i'm going to read it anyway just because it's good for the eyes <laughs> well but the audio book does have an extra it does have a unique track on it as well oh cool which, uh, i had to write a song for it um so that was quite fun i mean it's quite funny doing an audio book because you're just sort of I'm just like, talk, like it does work. People say, just pretend you're just talking to a mate and mm. it stopped me being a bit too prissy. And I, yeah. I, the one thing I did think, if I knew I was going to have to read this out, I would have written shorter sentences. But okay. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I, I, the the audio book for me is a, it, it, getting music in there was really hard. It's like they're so anti having any kind of music in there. Uh, like I, and so I ended up singing lyrics at the beginning of each song, which, 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 um, which was, you know, each chapter had its own lyrics. But yeah, it's weird. The, the whole mess around that was, is kind of particular. Thank you so much um, for for talking to me today. Uh, we actually have we. I think I think we might have been in the same place once. Oh really? Back, way back then. But it's so weird. I've met to, to meet you online and to actually at some point hopefully we'll meet in person. And have a glass of wine or something absolutely nice. for sure <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show thank you